Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to continue in our Gospel of Luke series today. We're going to be looking at Luke uh, chapter 6. And before we read our passage this morning, as we said last week, we can't go in depth in all of the passages of Luke. And so we're doing sort of flyovers of different sections. But these are important things that are happening. We don't want to lose track of them as we look at Jesus's life. These things happen in order for a reason. And so we learn as we look at the narrative of Jesus's life. And so where we saw, we left Jesus last week was with this miraculous catch of fish. You may remember he, he went out in Peter's boat And uh, they caught so many fish that they had to have two boats and the nets were so full that the the boats were sinking. And it was this amazing, miraculous event that occurred. And as a result of that, Peter, James, and John, they leave everything and they follow Jesus. And this is the calling of the first disciples. And from there, Jesus continues to travel around Galilee and he goes into the different towns and villages and teaches and he heals people as he's going. And this is, this is a big part of his ministry. And as he goes, he starts to have more and more people following him. Not surprising, he's going around healing people, he is casting out evil spirits, Uh, his teaching is powerful, and people see it as the word of God, and so uh, people are curious about who he is. They want to hear what he has to say, and they also want to see what he's doing. And at the same time, he's calling more and more people to be his disciples. These are the people uh, who really put their trust in him, and they start to form their lives around him, as we saw Peter and James and John do last week. And he's also starting at the same time to uh, have some opposition to him. There are people who are starting to oppose him. Uh, They really don't like what he is doing and what he is saying. And we're particularly seeing this with the religious leaders at the time. Uh, Jesus is, is associating with tax collectors and sinners, and he's even eating with them, and he's calling them to be his disciples, to come and follow him. And these are people who are supposed to be on the outside, right? They are supposed to be on the outside of the walls and barriers that, that society has put up. And so uh, the religious leaders are really unhappy about this because Jesus here is bringing them inside, He's bringing them inside, and he's uh, treating them as though they were loved by God. And so people really don't like this. And there's an emphasis through all of this on the authority of Jesus. And that's why it's so important for us to look at these passages. There's this big emphasis on the authority of Jesus through all of this. That Jesus has authority over the physical world, right? Uh, This is one of the things that we see in his healing of people's diseases. When he heals their bodies, when he heals uh, the different injuries and things that they have, even the miraculous catch of fish that we saw last week, we see that Jesus has authority over the physical world. He also has authority over the spiritual powers that are at work in the world. And this is an important thing that we see in his ministry too. He is constantly casting out evil spirits. This is something we see as part of his ministry. And so Jesus has authority over the spiritual powers in the world. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And this is a really big one. This is, this is something that we see, uh, you all may remember the story when he's teaching and the people bring their friend who is paralyzed and they lower him down through the roof uh, and they uh, put him in front of him and Jesus heals him and then says, your sins are forgiven. Or maybe it's the other way around actually. Uh, he says, just so you know, right, that we have the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And he also has the authority over how to interpret and follow God's law. 
He tells people when to fast and how to observe the Sabbath. And he has these arguments with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law about these things. And these last two in particular, the forgiveness of sins and the interpretation of God's word are really making some people unhappy. Because when doing this, he is, uh, is uh, exercising authority that belongs to God alone. And so this is signifying once again that Jesus is the Son of God. If he's not, then he's blaspheming and he should be in big trouble. And that's what a lot of people are accusing him of. But if he is the Son of God, then he does have the authority to do these things. So all of these things are working together. And so even as we look at Jesus' life and we are trying to figure out more and more who he is, we want to see this as an important piece of things, that Jesus has this authority from God. And so after all of this, at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that Jesus goes off by himself to pray. And this is something that we see him do regularly throughout Luke's gospel, that Jesus goes off by himself to quiet places to have fellowship in times of intimate prayer with his Father in heaven. And this is a vital part of Jesus' life and ministry. And uh, when he comes back from that time, he sets apart 12 of his followers to be apostles. These are going to be the ones who are sent out. This is a question we have at our house sometimes. Were there 12 disciples? Were there more disciples? All of these questions. We won't go into all of that now, but he sets apart 12 of his followers to be the apostles who he is going to send out. And so these are the 12 that we tend to know by name. And that brings us to our passage today, what is, what is often called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. It's, it's Luke's version of the Sermon on a Mount, but here it says Jesus goes to a level place. And so it's often called the Sermon on the Plain. And he's healing people, he's, he's healing them of their diseases and impure spirits, and then he starts to teach. And that brings us to our passage for today. We're not going to read all of Luke 17 through 49 because it's a really long passage, but that is what encompasses the Sermon on the Plain. I would encourage you to read it yourself. You can do it probably in five or six minutes. Worth reading. But we're going to focus this morning, uh, we're going to do a flyover of the whole sermon, but we're going to focus this morning on verses 27 through 36. Uh, And so we'll put that up there. And let's pray before we read this morning. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, as always, for the gift of your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that that he came to, to live among us, to teach us, to heal us, to reveal you to us so that we might come to know you and that we might come uh, to, uh, to know the forgiveness of sins and to put our faith in you so that we might be saved. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we, we look at your word, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts and minds, that you would speak to us once again this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Starting at verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So on people's lists of favorite verses, favorite passages, this one doesn't typically make the cut. (laughs) This one is a a passage that reminds me of another place in the Gospels. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus is talking with his disciples about what it means to follow him. And one of his disciples responds at the end by saying this, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is what I think of when I read this passage. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. What we have just read is a very hard teaching. Who can accept it? Sometimes uh, you might hear it said that Jesus preaching and teaching is meant to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, Jesus teaching is meant to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I think this is one of those passages that afflicts both the comfortable and the afflicted. Uh, It's an equal opportunity offender here. And I don't say these things about our passage to let us off the hook or to suggest that this teaching is so hard that there's no point in even trying. But I think it's worth admitting on the front end that this is a hard teaching and it is difficult to accept. I have preached on this passage before and I've had people approach me and tell me that they do not like this teaching, that they are angry about it, and they really have a strong reaction to what Jesus is saying here. So if you are in that club, you are not alone when you hear this. It may be a passage that you just don't like, and we may even want to disagree with Jesus about whether we should actually live this way or not. We may find these ideas offensive on some level. And so if we can just admit that we have these feelings, uh, these conflicted feelings and thoughts at the beginning of our time together today, then maybe we can be open to hearing what Jesus is saying here and understanding where he's coming from and why he's telling his followers to live this way and even to consider living this way ourselves. Today's passage is is the second part of what we call the Sermon on the Plain, like we said earlier. And in this teaching, in this sermon, uh, Jesus is laying out the pattern of living in the kingdom of God, the ethics of God's kingdom. And what he's doing is holding it up in contrast to the accepted pattern of living in the world and saying, if you are going to be my disciple, then this is what that looks like. If you're going to follow me, then there's a a way that you're going to live that is different than the rest of the world. And he starts by laying out a series series of blessings and woes as part of the passage that we skipped over. Uh, But he lays out these blessings and woes that are at the least counterintuitive. And they turn everything that we understand about how the world works on its head. Jesus starts by saying, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. 
Blessed are the hungry, and woe to those who are full. This is different than the way that we see and understand the world. When we see people who are rich, who are wealthy, we say, look at that person. They are blessed. When we see people who have plenty to eat, we say, look at that person. They are blessed. And Jesus is here saying, no, no, it's the other way around. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are hungry. And woe to the rich. And woe to those who are full. Sometimes we think about this in in Luke's teaching uh, in in his gospel and in the book of Acts as the world being turned upside down, that this is part of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus comes in and he changes things up for us and he says the kingdom of God works differently from the rest of the world. It works the opposite. It's the great reversal that we've been seeing throughout Luke's gospel, going all the way back to the Magnificat, Mary's song in Luke chapter one, where it talks about the humble will be lifted up and the proud will be brought low. This is the prerogative of God in his kingdom. This is what Mary says. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And he goes on to the next verse. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Now, what we're hearing here is sort of a prophetic word from Jesus. It's something that you might, when you read the prophetic books of the Old Testament, run across. I think of the book of Amos in particular. And it's not to say that having wealth and riches or or having plenty to eat is bad in and of itself. It's not saying that to go and seek poverty, but it is a warning against the way that riches can get a hold of us and tempt us in this life. And it's a warning about people gathering more and more and more for themselves when there is a world in need around us and neglecting the needs that we see around us while we're continually taking more and more for ourselves. And Jesus is speaking into that and saying, don't live this way. Don't live this way. So Jesus issues this statement of blessings and woes to begin his sermon, which gets everybody's attention, and it it disorients them a little bit. You might imagine people thinking, where are you going with this, Jesus? Where are you going with this? And then he comes and hits them with, with what we might say is the heart of his ethical teaching here in Luke 6. Here's how to live as my followers and my disciples. And this is where I think things really get real. In the United States, we have a saying, this is where the rubber hits the road. And that's what this is. This is where the rubber hits the road. In verses 27 and 28 that we just read, Jesus gives four commands Four imperatives, things that we are to do. And if you just look at the actions themselves, if you see what's up there on the slide, if you just look at these actions, there's really nothing that objectionable about them. He says, love, love, do good, bless, and pray. And if we read those things by themselves, then we might think, you know what? This, this sounds like Jesus' teachings. This is the nice Jesus that I really love, right? This is, this is the Jesus who, who I like and I want to follow. I want to do these things. I want to be a loving person. I want to do good. I want to bless. I want to pray. And if you followed each of these commands, each of these imperatives up with a word like others or everyone, then we'd probably just accept this teaching without thinking much about it. There wouldn't be anything that exceptional about this teaching. Love everyone. Do good to everyone. 
Bless everyone. Pray for everyone. And if I left you with that today, you'd probably go home thinking, that is a really nice message. I want to do that. Yes, I'm going to love everyone when I go home today. And that's great. But the problem is, as we already know, that this is not what Jesus follows these commands up with. He is much more specific and particular than that. And by doing this, he is much more provocative than by saying everyone. Because this is what he says. He says, love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. And the specifics are what make this teaching so hard and difficult. Now, of course, in theory, loving everyone and praying for everyone and doing good to everyone would include your enemy, of course. And so we could say, well, of course, if I love everyone, then that's going to be included. But by being more specific in his instructions here, Jesus forces us to be specific when we think about who this applies to. It makes it concrete for us because there are real, actual people in this world who don't like us and who we don't like in return. There are real, actual people who we might consider our enemy. And if we're honest with ourselves, there may be even groups of people, different religions, different ethnicities, different nationalities, that we would say these people are our enemies in some ways. Or maybe it's different political loyalties. These are the enemy. The political discourse in the United States right now has a lot of that. If you disagree with me, you are my enemy. Or it may be actual individuals, people that you you work with, people in your families, people that you can think of, teachers or classmates, people that you actually grew up with in some way. A bully that you knew back then, a bully that you know now. As I'm talking, you might have actual people coming to mind. These are the people that Jesus is saying that we are to love and to bless and to do good to and to pray for. This is a very difficult teaching. Who can accept it? I don't want to do that. (laughs) I don't want to live that way. Now, there is a way of misreading this teaching that says that that whatever abuse comes to you, that you should just lay down and accept it, and that that's the way to live. And that's not really the point here. And I hope you don't go home thinking that. And especially when we read, we follow up where Jesus says, if someone punches you, let them do it again. If someone steals your jacket, give them your coat as well. Give to everyone who begs from you. Lend without expecting to be paid back. There's a way of reading this that says, you know what? You're just supposed to just lay down and take it. But the point is really something different, right? The point is to say, don't start to seek revenge. Don't start to treat everybody the exact same way that they are treating you. Don't get caught up in patterns of retribution that continue to escalate. And they never end well. The point is not to allow the hatred and anger in someone else's heart that causes them to mistreat you to infect your heart as well. That's what Jesus is getting at here. As Paul says in in Romans chapter 5, he says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. The point is to be proactive in doing good, even to those who don't deserve it. 
And Jesus says, just in this passage, the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. You know that gets misquoted a lot, right? Do to others as they would do to you. That's not what Jesus says. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It goes back to what we said earlier, that this is what Jesus is doing. He is laying out for this the ethics of God's kingdom, which stand over and against the ethics of the world. And this is his point in saying, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Everybody does that. Everybody does that. But the kingdom of God doesn't run on a system of reciprocity. It's not a you treat me well and I'll treat you well in return. But if you mistreat me, then I'm going to mistreat you in return. Instead, Jesus is calling his followers to form a community where there aren't hard boundaries defining who is in and who is out and where no one is treated as if they were an enemy. A community where we are proactive in doing good, even to those who don't deserve it. I like the way uh, N.T. Wright talks about it. You all know I like to quote him in here, but he describes it this way. He says, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. And he goes on to say this, think of the best thing that you can do for the worst person and go and do it. Think of what you'd really like for someone to do for you and do it for them. Think of the people to whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. Friends, you can go do that even today. You can take this and go do that. That's what Jesus is getting at here. What Wright is describing is what we call grace. Grace. And grace is the system that the kingdom of God is governed by. Grace is the system that the kingdom of God is governed by. Several years ago, uh, Bono, a man named Bono, he's the lead singer of the band U2, was interviewed by a journalist about a variety of topics, including the topic of religion. And, and this is what he had to say uh, about the idea of grace. I really, I really loved it. He says this. Uh, it's a long quote. I only put the, the last part of it up here, but here's what he says. He says, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. I'd be in big trouble, he goes on to say, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. I love the idea of the sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, you Cretans, there are certain results to the way we are, to selfishness, and there's a mortality as part of your very sinful nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? And there are consequences to actions. But the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world. 
so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point, and it should keep us humbled. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. Grace, grace, friends. Grace changes everything. It turns everything on its head. Of all the things that Christianity holds to and teaches, I think this is the main one that sets us apart. It's often struck me that the idea of loving your enemy is really what sets a Christianity apart from other religions. This teaching distinguishes us uh, from other philosophies and ethical systems. And, and sometimes I think about starting a sermon like this with that, but then I think, well, it's actually probably the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ that really sets Christianity apart from everything else. And then as I think about it more, I think these are really one in the same. These are really one and the same thing. As Paul reflects on the crucifixion in Romans chapter five, this is what he says. He says, God shows our, his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And later on in the same chapter, Paul describes us while we were still in our sin as being enemies of God. We were enemies of God. And we know that Jesus prayed from the cross for those who tortured and mocked him, asking the Father to forgive them. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And the point is this. While we look at this difficult teaching, this one that is so hard to accept, this this one that we don't want to do in light of the cross, then what we realize is that we are the ones who have received the benefits of this kingdom ethic that Jesus is teaching here, that we have received grace. We are the enemies who have been loved. We are the haters who have received good. We are the cursers who have been blessed. And we are the abusers who have been prayed for. And all of this from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. As we're reminded in verses 35 and 36 of our passage today, this is the very character of God himself. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He is merciful and gracious. This is to be our motivation. If we seek to live by the kingdom's ethic, We are to be like this because this is what God is like. And if God is this gracious and merciful, then how can we as his children be any different from the way that he is? I appreciate that that Luke here calls us God's children in this passage because there are many ways that we can describe our relationship with God. We can call ourselves followers. We're followers of God or of Jesus Christ. We're believers. We're disciples. But children is the one that Luke uses here, and I find it to be the most powerful of all the ways we might think about our relationship with God. Because in Christ, we have been adopted as God's children. And like all children, we will end up becoming like our parents in some way, absorbing their behaviors and their ways of being in the world. The older I get, the more I see this playing itself out in my life. I recognize my mother and my father in the way that I act. But this is what it looks like to take on the character of our heavenly father, that we start to live this way, that we start to love our enemies and bless those who, do, uh, who curse us and be good to those who mistreat us. 
As Christians, what we're being asked to do with our enemies is the same thing that we're asked to do with all of our relationships, which is to see them in light of the cross so that your relationship with that person, whoever it is, is no longer just about whatever interactions that you've had with them, whatever insults have been exchanged, whatever abuses have been traded between you. Now your relationship with that person is based on grace. And recognizing that involves recognizing that Jesus died for you and that you have received mercy and recognizing that the same is true for your enemy, for that other person too, that Jesus died for them as well. And he wants them to know that they too have received mercy and grace. I think this this begs the question, uh, can we really live this way? Can we really live this way? Is it possible? It's not practical, that's for sure. I don't know that anybody would argue living this way is very practical. But assuming that we accept this teaching and we decide we want to try and live this way, can we do it? And I think the key here is recognizing that it's not something that we can do on our own strength. This isn't ultimately our love or our forgiveness that we are offering to other people. It's not our grace. It's God's. And the only way that we're going to be able to offer God's grace to others is through the power of God that is at work in us. And this is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live this way. And so we pray for the ability to love as we have been loved. Jesus ends this sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, with two illustrations that I think are instructive for how to live this way. And one is about trees and fruit, and the second is about buildings and foundations. And and we don't have time to go into these in detail this morning, but it's maybe enough to say that the first one about trees and fruit is about our hearts. And the second one about buildings and foundations is about obedience. And so if we want to live this way, then the first step is heart transformation. It's got to be about heart transformation. It's about desire. Some might say that we even need heart transplants. More than we need heart transformation, we need heart transplants the way that the prophet Ezekiel describes. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And this is God's work to do by his grace. So all we can seek to do is to abide in him and let him work in us by his Holy Spirit. But then when God has transformed our hearts, then we can put his words into practice. Then we can be obedient. And that's what he's talking about in the second part about buildings and foundations. Those who hear my word and put it into practice, they are the ones who build their house on the solid rock. That's what the person is like. So first our hearts and then our actions. And we might be surprised at how God meets us in following him in this way. I want to close our time today uh, with an excerpt uh, from a book called The Hiding Place uh, by a woman named Corey Ten Boon. Has anybody ever read this book before or heard of it? Uh, it's worth reading, I'll just say. It's a book that is worth reading. Corey Ten Boom was a, a Dutch Christian who spent uh, 10 months in a concentration camp during World War II because she and her family were hiding Jewish people in their house, in a secret room in their house during the war. And Corey survived the war, but several of her family members died while imprisoned. 
And after the war, God gave her this, this powerful ministry where she found herself speaking around the world, across Western Europe and the United States, uh, and teaching people about God's word. And this is what she writes in her book uh, about something that happened to her later in life. She says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, her sister's plain, pain-blanched face. And he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. And his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. Thank God for that. Friends, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess uh, that this is a difficult teaching, and, and there are other teachings we prefer to this one in your Gospels. And yet, Lord, we know that this is what you have done for us. And Lord, we see that through your death on the cross. So Lord, we pray that you would fill us up with your love and your forgiveness for other people. And Lord, we pray that, that by doing so, that this world might be filled more and more with your grace. So that your kingdom might be built here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.